from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Like hot dogs have so much personality to me <laughs> that, you know, adding a face or some legs or something doesn't seem that far off. Like they're already so expressive. This week on the show, we start thinking about road trips and roadside food, the carbon costs of European travel, and how we might offset that and help coffee farmers in the process. We share a vegetarian chili verde recipe, and we hear from black farmers in Kansas about what the new federal funding means to them. That's all coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so please stay with us. I'm Kate Young. Thanks for tuning in to Earth Eats. We'll start with some food and farming updates from Renee Reed. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Millions of rural residents across the Midwest are at risk of nitrate contamination in their drinking water, but might not know it. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports on the lack of testing in rural well water. The few surveys that have been done to test for nitrate concentrations in drinking water have been alarming. Some results in Illinois came back with up to nine times the safe drinking water standard. That's according to a new report from environmental nonprofit Prairie Rivers Network. Katie Gregg helped write the report and says excessive nitrate levels can have severe human health impacts. We just assume it's all all safe, but like nitrate has no taste no smell, no color. There's nothing other than actually testing your water that can tell you whether it's contaminated or not. Nitrates mostly run off of fertilizer-laden agricultural land, making rural areas particularly vulnerable to contamination. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Increasingly, states like Kansas and Oklahoma are allowing their COVID-19 emergency declarations to expire. That means additional assistance from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, has gone away. Melinda Craigs Ingram is the SNAP Outreach Manager for the Northern Illinois Food Bank. She says with unemployment numbers still so high, decreased benefits will be a shock to many SNAP recipients. The impact that we've experienced since COVID has not subsided. And if we can reference the last recession, it took about three to five years for it to recover. And I, and I can anticipate it'll be about the same time frame that we'll be, we'll be looking at. She also says the cost of food has increased during the pandemic and that monthly allotments won't go as far now as they did a year ago. A five-person household will lose an average of $240 per month when emergency declarations expire. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. While many of us aren't quite ready to get on an airplane yet, some of us are hitting the open road this summer. In 2019, Josephine McRobbie spoke with writer and illustrator Emily Wallace about her book, Roadsides, documenting quirky attractions along southern roadways. Across from a tire store and next to a coin laundry in Smithfield, North Carolina, stands Hills of Snow, a tiny building shaped like a bright blue snowball. Snowballs, those colorful shaved ice concoctions, aren't really in high demand on a Monday morning in October, so they're closed, and I'm here by my lonesome, checking out the endless list of flavors. Maui Waui, papaya, peach daiquiri, peanut butter, peppermint, pineapple. Wild strawberry was Emily Wallace's flavor of choice when she was growing up in Smithfield. But Hills of Snow is more than a place to get a sugar rush. The audacity of the shape of the building would prove to have a big impact on her. Blue raspberry, sour watermelon, spearmint, tamarind, tutti frutti. It's just amazing. It's funny how much I think about it. You know, I definitely didn't realize that at the time, but I think it just showed me a sort of 
what was possible and you know with your imagination in a otherwise kind of rural spot where we didn't have like you know a giant museum to go to and see all this artwork that you know you could create um, we had a giant snowball stand and that meant a lot to me and it still does we're upstairs in my sort of studio office space Today, Emily is a writer and illustrator whose work focuses on Southern food, its traditions, culture, and histories of labor and industry. Yeah, these are little macaroni people, macaroni and cheese people. It was for a um, feature in AAA magazine that they had done about... Her new book is titled Roadsides, an illustrated companion to dining and driving in the American South. It's an A to Z guide with each letter of the alphabet focused on a concept and corresponding place. Chapter Z, for example, is about zealots. She knew she had to talk about barbecue, but rather than wade into the style wars of her own home state, she visited Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. They have people that line up there for five or six hours to wait for a tray of barbecue. Chapter B for billboards looks at south of the border, the Mexico-themed roadside attraction on the state line linking the Carolinas. It advertises via nearly 200 billboards on Interstate 95. The tourist attraction was founded by a man who used a lot of stereotypical imagery, but also supported racial integration during Jim Crow. In Emily's words, it holds a lot of meanings all at once. South of the border kind of has long straddled this place between being kind of forward thinking in some ways and backwards in others, or family friendly in some ways, like they have these rides for children, and then, you know, has or had some illegal gambling places. For Chapter D, that's Directions, Emily visited the Florida Welcome Centers, another state-straddling phenomenon with a surprising history. A lot of folks that work there have hung on for 30 or plus years and just have these amazing stories of how they help travelers. Um, They give out a free cup of 100% Florida orange juice, but they also have to pass this, I think, 167-question test about Florida history you have to be able to read a map upside down. And and the stories, you know, from people who've worked there for a long time are just kind of amazing about giving people directions or helping deliver a baby or helping a man who got bitten by a snake in the parking lot. Um, that was really surprising. I hadn't thought about, you know, just the number of people that are in and out of there a day that these people come into contact with and the ways that they help way beyond, you know, just offering directions. Emily can trace her interest in representations of food all the way back to when she was a kid, when she would draw and write stories with her grandmother. She made a cookbook, like a little spiral-bound cookbook, that she gave to um, my cousins and me. And I was flipping through it a few years ago, and there were so many drawings of the foods that I feel like I write about and and draw now. It was kind of funny. I was like, of course she already did this. Like, she'd drawn pimento cheese sandwich and written like cheese emily's favorite she beat me to it and i didn't even realize like you know i was kind of refashioning this in a way emily's mother was an english teacher and her parents also owned a farm equipment retailer in smithfield which was a bit of a local gathering spot she grew up with a love for storytelling after studying creative writing and studio art she went on to pursue a master's degree in folklore she was interested in music history but her life shifted dramatically when she took a class on food writing the students were tasked with documenting a certain person or place. And I chose this little pimento cheese factory that was about 30 minutes from where I went to school and just realized how many stories you could tell through just that one food uh, and fell in love with the process. Then, you know, it, it, that was specifically about pimento cheese and I was thinking about the ingredients and followed those down different paths and then um, I've just kept going from there. Emily's illustrations have both the frank documentary composition of a William Eggleston photograph and the warm whimsy of a hand-painted carnival sign. Her imagery covers southern dining icons, Duke's mayonnaise, doilies, grits. Some items, like hot dogs or pickles, lend themselves to a certain cartoon style. This is going to sound hokey, but in some ways they just, like hot dogs have so much personality to me (laughs) that, you know, adding a face or some legs or something doesn't seem that far off. Like, they're already so expressive. Recently, she's been drawing one of her own favorite roadsides. Uh, nab crackers. Uh, the 
orange sort of square sandwich crackers. It's two cheese crackers and peanut butter in the middle. Um, I love them. I asked Emily how many miles she put on her car while she was doing research for the book. That's a good question. Probably don't want to know how many miles. <laughs> um, I don't know. A lot of nabs were consumed. That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Listeners, you've heard me talk about the Earth Eats Digest. It's our weekly newsletter keeping you up to date with the show, sharing recipes, thoughts, and sometimes stories. If you have subscribed to the Digest, first of all, thank you. And if you haven't been receiving it lately, there's a good chance it's going to your promotions folder or your junk folder. Sometimes that happens with email filters. Would you mind checking and maybe redirecting it so you don't miss an issue? Thanks again. And if you haven't subscribed to the Earth Eats Digest yet, you can do that quickly and easily at eartheats.org. Next, we join Chef Arlen Llewellyn at Function Brewing for a vegetarian spin on a classic dish from Mexico. We are making a jackfruit and white bean chili verde. And then I'll show you at the end how to make turn that into enchiladas if you want. This isn't something we normally do here. At Function Brewing, our menu is primarily soup, salad, appetizers, and dessert. I sort of describe it as light bistro food. Did I miss sandwiches? Wow. Soup, salad, sandwiches, appetizers, and desserts, and obviously beer. But in this uh, particular situation, I was preparing this dish for the Community Kitchen Brunch Fundraiser. They do them about once a quarter every three months and they have a bunch of different local chefs making courses. You choose the item you would like and you get a nice three course menu paired with Cardinal Spirits cocktails. The whole thing is $50 and all of the proceeds go to the community kitchen. Everything is donated. Yeah, this was a brunch uh, dish I came up with for that was I was asked to make a vegetarian entree. I was thinking about how to make chili verde be vegetarian and then I turned that into an enchilada, we served it with some sauteed peppers and spinach on the side and then topped it with a poached egg. There was a course before it and a course after it, but in and of itself, it's a standalone meal in terms of getting all of your nutritional touch points in. Typically, chili verde is made with slow simmered pork. It's a really rich, delicious stew. The pork fat balances out the acidity of the tomatillos. I wanted to make a vegetarian version of it. I think the biggest component is to make sure that you're capturing the fat that would be coming from the pork normally. So we're gonna be doing this with butter start with the vegetables that need to be roasted. Tomatillos are these goofy looking green tomatoes that come in a very strange looking paper packaging. What you do want to feel for is that you have a nice firm tomatillo beneath the paper. If it's mushy, just like a regular tomato, you're not going to want that. You'll want to remove the papery hull and wash the fruit well. It has a sticky residue that you need to remove. We're going to cut these in half onto a cookie sheet, uh, baking sheet. Either you can put parchment on it or grease it, but you will want something because the tomatillos are gonna put out some liquid, which would get pretty sticky. And we're just gonna put the cut side down on the sheet. So the poblano pepper, cut the top off, and then we're gonna cut it in half lengthwise and pull out the interior portion with seeds and ribs. Also put those cut side down. We're gonna put them in an oven that's been preheated to 400 degrees and let them roast until the tomatillos start to brown and then the skin puffs up off of the poblano peppers. I would start checking it at about 20 minutes. After roasting for 20 minutes at 400 degrees, Chef Arlen pulled the tomatillos and poblanos from the oven. The tomatillos gave up a lot of liquid and that's great. We'll capture all of it. We're gonna use the whole component. Um, and then I said this, the skin has started to brown. And then some of the skin on the poblanos has popped off. So any portion where it has popped off, we'll just go ahead and peel it off. Don't stress about it. If you can't get it off the whole pepper, not a big deal. We're also just gonna roughly chop this up. We will be blending this later. So we're gonna start with a whole onion. We're gonna dice them up. Don't worry about it being perfect. Again, it's gonna be blended later. So we just want them to be in small enough pieces that they're gonna cook 
thoroughly. So we're gonna put these onions in a soup pot with three tablespoons of butter. And I started out at medium high, but once it comes up to temperature, we're gonna lower it down to medium to medium low. We are not trying to caramelize these onions. We want them to be fully cooked, fully translucent, but without that caramelized flavor. So once we've sweated out our onions with the butter, we are going to add to this our tomatillos and our peppers. Um, we're also gonna add two cups of water. We're gonna loosen up the onions from the bottom of the pan. And then we're gonna put a cover on this and just let this simmer medium to medium low heat until everything gets really tender and it starts to reduce a little bit. While this is simmering away, um, we're gonna chop up a cup of cilantro. Once this simmers away and starts to reduce a little bit and everything gets tender, we're gonna go ahead and add the cilantro to it. And we're gonna just gonna go ahead and blend this up. I'm using an immersion blender, but we could transfer this in batches to a blender and do it that way. Blend until you reach a nice salsa texture. No big chunks, but it doesn't need to be velvety smooth. So to this, I'm going to add some jackfruit. I'm using canned jackfruit. You can buy a whole jackfruit in the grocery store, or you may get a need to go to a specialty market. But I don't recommend it for the faint of heart. Based on whether or not it's less ripe versus more ripe, you get an entirely different product that can be very fussy to process down. And you also end up with a very large volume because jackfruit are not tiny. I personally prefer to just pick up a can of jackfruit if I'm just making something at home. And the jackfruit in a can is typically pretty minimally processed. In this case, we just have, you know, jackfruit water, salt, and lime juice in this can. At this point, you might be asking, what is jackfruit? Jackfruit is a large, tropically grown fruit, typically used in South and Southeast Asian cuisines. It has a thick, rough outer skin, and the inside can be soft and fruity when it's very ripe, or firm and more neutral tasting when it's underripe. And it's become popular in the last several years because um, it has a relatively neutral flavor, but it has a very chewy, meaty, somewhat stringy texture, which is a great textural substitute for pork or uh, pulled chicken. If you put it in a dish that has a very strong flavored sauce like barbecue or in this case chili verde, it's a great substitute for meat. The interior texture of it reminds me a little bit of like canned bamboo and then the exterior gets into the more of these little fine shredded feathery pieces um, that definitely look very much like pulled pork or pulled chicken. So we want to drain the can. It's a very um, delicate flavor. It's a little tart from the lime juice in here. Kind of reminds me a little bit of a canned artichoke or hearts of palm in texture and in flavor. Brands do vary in terms of how tender the jackfruit is in the can. So you do want to try it. If it's still very firm, um, then you're going to want to let this simmer longer. Um, so in this case, I'm just going to let this simmer for about 10 minutes in my Verde sauce. So once we've um, chopped it down to a nice porky looking texture, we add that to the Verde. Um, we're going to let this simmer until uh, we're getting going to get a desired texture, which you want the water to really feel like it's cooked off and it has similar to a texture of a chili. You know, it kind of hold together a little bit if you put it on a plate. So we're going to simmer it in, um, with a lid off until we get that texture. Once we have the texture we want, we're going to take it off the heat and add our last few components. So we want to add some white beans. Obviously you could cook these from scratch yourself. In this case I'm just using a 15 ounce can. With, with canned beans you do want to make sure you drain them and rinse them. I'm going to stir that into our verde and we are going to add three tablespoons of garlic powder and two teaspoons of salt just to finish it off. Um, we'll stir this all together and maybe let it hang out in heat for a minute or two just to fully warm through. We've got the full recipe for jackfruit verde on our website eartheats.org. And later on in the show, Chef Arlen Llewellyn will show us how to turn this into some tasty enchiladas. So stay with us. The pandemic isn't over by any stretch of the imagination. However, in places where vaccination rates are high, many aspects of life are returning to something close to normal. Thank you to everyone who's getting vaccinated. After more than a year of holding steady in place, many of us are itching to travel again. Here's a story about travel, climate change, and philanthropy from 2020, just before the pandemic when we had no idea what was coming. 
Keep in mind, when you hear last year in this story, it's referring to 2019, not 2020. Some of you avid public radio listeners out there will be familiar with our next guest, Rick Steves. He's best known for his show, Travel with Rick Steves, on public radio and on public television. He's also the head of Rick Steves' Europe, a U.S.-based European travel and guidebook company. What I do is I teach Americans how to travel in Europe. That's my beat, and uh, I see Europe as a waiting pool for world exploration. And I work with uh, over 100 people here in Seattle, and our mission is to inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando, to get out of our comfort zone and to come home with a broader perspective. And uh, our radio show is carried by, I think, 400 stations around the country in public radio. And uh, the main way I make money is by taking people to Europe on tours. We took 30,000 people on over 1,000 tours last year. We have uh, well over 100 uh, European guides that we employ, and this is um, an exciting way for Americans to be able to connect smartly and efficiently and economically with Europe. We're talking with Rick Steves here on Earth Eats this week because of the new Climate Smart commitment he's launched. I'll let Rick explain this initiative and what's behind it. The whole passion I have for inspiring Americans to get out there and travel is to deal honestly with challenges confronting us. And there's a lot of challenges. Uh, America's never been so fearful and ethnocentric, and there's uh, a lot of fearful people that don't have a passport, that think that everybody's scary out there and the world's a dangerous place and we should build walls. And I find that um, the more you travel, the more you realize the world's a beautiful place and uh, we, we can work with the family of nations and deal smartly with the challenges confronting us. A big challenge, of course, is climate change. When you travel, you realize it's here. You can see it in, in just kind of silly ways for uh, affluent travelers not to be able to ski in the summer or uh, there's no air conditioning in, in Germany because they didn't used to need it and now they do need it. There's so many ways that you can see that things are changing in the climate. And, but that's, that's just kind of little annoyances for wealthy people. I find in my travels that it's the poorest countries and the poorest people in the poorest countries that are impacted most severely by climate change. And uh, when you travel, you, you gain an awareness of that. And I think uh, you, when you fly home, you realize, yeah, we got to get on board and help stop this. So, you know, one thing that I've done lately is our climate smart commitment. We've given ourselves, a, it's basically a self-imposed carbon tax. Something that I feel um, very committed to is helping my company travel in an ethical way when it comes to climate change. In the last year, we took uh, 30,000 people to Europe. And um, frankly, I made too much money because I didn't have to pay for the carbon we generated by flying those people to Europe and back. And I wish our government made us account for that in an honest way. But here in the United States, our government just wants to have the short-term economic prosperity with no honest concern about sustainability in the long term. Well, I just don't think that's ethical. So I gave myself a self-imposed carbon tax. There's a consensus that when an American flies to Europe and back, they generate about as much carbon as you typical American generates by driving their car for six months. And you can solve that by not traveling, but I think I want to travel. You know, it's fun, and the world's an important place to explore, and it's just very constructive to get out there and, and uh, have a broader perspective. But if we want to travel, we can travel in a way where we can mitigate the carbon we produce by investing in organizations that are fighting climate change. And uh, again, this is a consensus among the scientific community that if you spend $30 smartly, you know, investing in NGOs that are fighting climate change, that creates enough good to mitigate the bad you create when you fly to Europe and back. So I thought, I'm taking 30,000 people to Europe. Let me pay $30 for each of those people in a smart way, and we can create as much good as we create bad, and we can then tr fly essentially carbon neutral. So $30 times 30,000 people is $900,000, rounded up to a million dollars. And our annual tax is a million dollars. I took it out of our profit. I'd like to do it in a way that is kind of a twofer that helps people in the developing world because I know that half of humanity is smallholder family farms living on trying to live on $5 a day. We decided to choose 10 companies that are doing good work and uh, we gave them a million dollars. So that's an average of 100,000 each. 
and uh, each of them are doing their work. We're empowering them, and that gives us the the joy and the peace of mind of knowing that uh, we're flying to Europe ethically. It's nothing heroic. I'm not doing anything extra. It's simply ethical. I should not be able to run my tour business without covering my carbon costs. And I wanted to support uh, farmers in the developing world. And I also wanted to support advocacy organizations that are lobbying for the environment in our government in Washington, D.C. to educate and encourage our legislators to be ethical when it comes to having government policies that fight climate change rather than maximize our economic uh, environment in the short term. So when I support an advocacy organization, I'm supporting lobbying for the environment, lobbying for poor farmers south of the border, lobbying for sustainability. Um, you know, that's, that's the advocacy uh, agenda that I'm supporting with this um, self-imposed carbon tax. I really appreciate that some of the funding that you're providing is going to these advocacy organizations because I think a lot of times an individual's initial response to what can I do about climate change is turn down their thermostat or, uh, you know, recycle or something. And, and it, the impact that you can have is so much greater if, if policy changes. You know, that's, that's such a good point, Kate. That's a very important point. And to me, personally, the lion's share of my philanthropy goes to advocacy organization when it comes to economic justice and environmental issues and so on. I really believe that, uh, well, I know that all of the charity and philanthropy and hard work by NGOs put together when it comes to fighting poverty doesn't amount to much at all compared to the impact of government policies on those same issues. As a philanthropist, I like to, um, it's just fun for me to, to support organizations that resonate with me. That was Rick Steves talking about his climate smart commitment. After a short break, we'll hear from someone involved with one of the organizations that his self-imposed climate tax is supporting. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young. You're listening to Earth Eats. Before the break, we were talking with Rick Steves about his Climate Smart initiative. His travel company has selected 10 organizations to support this year as a way to offset the impact of his company's overseas air travel. One of those organizations is Food for Farmers. I spoke with Janice Nadwerney, a co-founder of Food for Farmers. They work with coffee farming cooperatives in Latin America on building community food security. When they started in 2010, they were interested in a different development model than what they had been seeing in coffee-producing regions. Often, the NGO comes in or the organization comes in, the consultant comes in, without ever really asking the community, what are the core issues at the heart of this problem? Food insecurity looks very different in, in communities around the world. And it's caused by different factors. And so what we decided to focus on was the diagnostic. That's where we sit down and ask the community and at different levels. We ask the board, we ask the staff of the cooperative, we ask families who are members, individually and collectively, what is affecting their livelihoods, their quality of life. And so through focus groups and surveys and conversations, we get an understanding of what is at the heart of this problem? What does food insecurity look like? What are the challenges to livelihoods? And so oftentimes you'll find that the cause of food insecurity is not lack of food. It might be depleted soils or lack of reliable water throughout the year. It might be no electricity, no roads, importation of processed packaged foods that are very unhealthy. People are not cooking. They've lost their traditional recipes. They've lost their seeds. 
And so before we co-design a strategy, we ask those questions of everyone in the community. And then we work with local partners and cooperative and families to develop strategies and set goals. And then together we co-design a plan, long-term plan for food security. And then we find expertise locally from partners who can teach families and a co-op how to implement those strategies and manage them independently. So our role becomes guide and auditor and teacher and connector. I asked Janice if she could explain the role of cooperatives in coffee producing communities. I'd say 70 to 80 percent of all coffee is produced by small scale farmers who own farms of less than 10 acres. A lot of them own farms of about an acre. So all of that beautiful specialty coffee that people love is produced entirely by hand by families all over the world and with very little land. And because coffee is a cash crop, it's a way for people to earn money, to send their kids to school, buy clothing, all the things they can't do in a barter economy. And because the promise of coffee prices has been so strong and demand has been so strong, that people have put most or all of their land into producing coffee. And over time, at the same time, they stopped producing food. So they've been using cash from their coffee crop to buy food. So rural areas now, which were agricultural, producing food, have now become food deserts. And so food is now brought in, trucked in or flown in from the city or from other countries, maybe even the U.S. And people are consuming really unhealthy processed foods. So you'll go to very remote communities and people will be drinking Coke and eating Fritos and they're not growing it anymore. So small scale farmers, because they produce so little coffee on their one acre or five acres, even if they put all of their land into it, they have no pricing power. They have no ability to determine the price for their coffee. So they group together in cooperatives. Okay. Coffee cooperatives are their membership organization. So it's a business. It's a coffee growing business. And what they do is they aggregate all of the coffee from their members and sell it in larger volumes so they can get a better price. Some cooperatives are small, 90 or 100 families. Some are in Africa. They tend to be larger. They can be 100,000 families. In Latin America, our partners range from 200 to 5,000 families, depending on where they are. They grow their coffee independently. They get support from the cooperative, technical support for growing coffee. And then the co-op collects and sells their coffee. So the cooperative is a membership and it represents small families. And that's who we work with. And what are the countries that your organization works in? We work in Mexico, in Chiapas, in Guatemala, with two organizations there, in Nicaragua, and in Colombia. And three of the co-ops we work with are indigenous. Three are led by women. I think all of them are fair trade. They all produce organic coffee as well. You were talking about the food security issues in these communities because they're not growing food anymore. And so what is your organization's role in that, in dealing with the the food insecurity? We're walking into a situation where there are decades of kind of food policy and agricultural policy has really promoted chemical inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, all of that, monoculture. All of those policies now have degraded the soil that they're farming. They've degraded the environment around the farms. And at the same time, small producers have been pressured to grow organic, to grow Rainforest Alliance, other certifications that will give them a premium over their low coffee prices. And so the focus has been on coffee, improve the quality and productivity of coffee, and you'll get more money and you'll be okay. And they're not okay. Poverty's Worse than ever, coffee prices have dropped 29% the last 10 years. Food prices are up anywhere from 40 to 70% over the same time period, depending on the country. And so people have been leaving their farms for years to find work. Men typically go to the city or they'll emigrate north like they are now when prices are low and they can't sustain through farming. Women are left to farm. There's no investment available for making their coffee quality better. So when we come in... There are already things going on in the community that are working and really exciting. 
somebody's keeping chickens, somebody's selling eggs, somebody's keeping bees and cacao. That's another strategy. So there are things already going on that is already an asset that could be expanded. So we come in, we look at farms from the farmer's perspective and not necessarily producing anything to meet the buyer's needs, but what will help sustain them and helping them look at all the different markets they can sell to. They can sell locally or nationally in their own country. They could export. And then we look at the farms and see ways to diversify those farms, restore environmental health through composting, organic practices, soil restoration, water systems that will allow people to grow vegetables. We look at each farm as a food hub, and then we help each family develop plans for their own farms and help the co-op tie those plans together through a strategy. So if the community chooses home gardens, organic home gardens, so they can produce food, what we found is, for example, that they're growing organically they're diversifying their farm, they're supporting pollinators, they're extending the agroforestry system in by planting native trees to shade their veggies. Uh, we also work with communities to help them bring back traditional recipes, traditional seeds, so that they can maintain the biodiversity of food farming throughout Latin America. So depending on the community, the strategies will look different. Cacao is something we're doing, basic grains, maize and corn organic vegetables, eggs, but it depends on first what the community is interested in and second, what's feasible. It sounds like it's messy and complicated and in individual to each family or each farm or each cooperative. Like it doesn't sound like you just have a plan and you go in and implement <laughs> Like it sounds like it's really <laughs> that messy, complicated kind of work. It is. And each case, I have to say, in each of our programs, we now have six, six community partners. Whatever we planned at the beginning, I assure you it's changed drastically <laughs> since we developed our long-term plan. Because things go wrong, somebody finds a wonderful new opportunity, things just change. And so I think the challenge and the exciting part of the work is that you go with it. So there are things that happen in each place that were unanticipated that have made the project so much better and so can, much successful. Can you give an example of that that comes to mind? We had started a program with the Sopexca Co-op in Nicaragua. They wanted to develop their organic brand for food. So Sopexca produces very high quality organic coffee. And we had a home garden program and they wanted to start a women's organic farmer's market. All women growing organic fruits and vegetables and selling at this local market because there was no healthy organic produce readily available. Mm -hmm. So we worked on training. Women were growing beautiful crops. They were very entrepreneurial, excited, energized to get going. And then in April 2018, the political unrest in Nicaragua stopped everything. There were protests over, I think it was Social Security's retirement benefits rate increases. There were student protests mm -hmm. that expanded throughout the country. It became very dangerous and violent over the next several months. People couldn't leave their homes. They couldn't travel. And so what happened was the co-op food security coordinator couldn't get to the villages where the women lived to help them. They couldn't bring their produce to market. They were stuck and everything stalled. And so we were concerned that it would stop and we wouldn't make progress and they wouldn't make progress. But what happened was because people were stuck at home, they couldn't go out to buy food. So all the families that had these gardens that had this produce were able to get through the four or five months where this was going on and feed themselves. And then they had enough food to sell or give to their neighbors. So they got by as well. It became their safety net, their only safety net. There's been so much emigration because of the lack of opportunity or food, that people were leaving when they could. Lots of people fled Nicaragua. These families stayed and they helped their neighbors through it. And my co-director was just there last week. And the market is thriving. They're adding a third day. They want to go to five days a week. It was packed. Produce is beautiful. Women are selling and they're becoming powerful, small businesswomen and have so many ideas about how to grow this business. But that worst case scenario that we saw as a huge problem 
ended up being a benefit, a really key benefit of the work. I asked Janice to talk about food for farmers and climate change. Coffee and other crops like it are hugely impacted by climate change, and they also impact climate change through monoculture and chemical inputs. And so if you look at the number of small-scale farmers that are growing coffee, moving them away from chemical inputs in monoculture to diversified agroecological farms, using organic practices, conserving soil, conserving water, increasing biodiversity, that has a huge impact on climate change if farmers change their practices. Not only their farming practices, though, it's what is happening with the food systems globally. Where you look at rural communities, now, you know, before they were producing food, now they're getting food shipped to them from halfway around the world Mm -hmm. through food aid, through general market trends and dietary trends. They're getting their unhealthy processed food shipped in from other countries. They've lost their food traditions. Their health is deteriorating. Malnutrition looks like obesity and diabetes and heart disease now. So by growing food locally and organically, they're improving their health and diets. They're reducing all those transport costs and that processing cost of unhealthy food. And they're also impacting climate change in that way. So thirdly is if they become thriving food hubs themselves, then everybody in their communities can have access to healthy food. Everybody in their communities can have locally produced foods. And so the cost of transporting all of that food goes down drastically as well. So we feel that we definitely have a direct relationship between the Climate Smart commitment and, and our work. That was Janice Nadwerney, co-founder of Food for Farmers, an organization that works to build food security in coffee-growing communities in Latin America. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Janice. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Anytime. Food for Farmers is one of the recipients of funding from the Rick Steves Climate Smart Commitment. You can hear more about these projects on our website, eartheats.org. back with Chef Arlen Llewellyn, and her verde is complete. This is the finished product, a nice, thick verde with the white beans and the jackfruit already incorporated into it. You could just serve this as is in a bowl with maybe some rice, avocado, or cheese, um, but we're going to make some enchiladas with it. It's onto a greased baking sheet or a parchment-lined baking sheet. I'm going to place a couple of tortillas. And these are flour tortillas? They're flour tortillas. So obviously traditional enchiladas are made with corn tortillas. There's a lot of things that are not traditional about this recipe. We've already deviated from the traditional pork chili verde. Visually, we're taking up maybe a quarter of the surface of the tortilla with a mound of jackfruit. So we're adding um, some shredded pepper jack cheese into the tortilla. Now we're gonna roll it up as tightly as we can. So we take one half over, we just try to push the filling up against it. We tuck the tortilla in, we just roll it as tightly as we can. And then we're gonna top it with some more cheese because who doesn't love more cheese? I, because I want that crispy texture, I don't want to pack them into a pan, which is what you would typically do with enchiladas. You would dip the tortilla in a sauce, you'd fill it, and then you'd take like a lasagna style pan, 13 by nine inch baking pan, and just pack them with enchiladas. So in this case, I've got two tucked together because they're gonna be served together. We're just gonna go ahead and pop this in an oven, 375, 400 degrees. I would, I would start looking at about 10 minutes as to whether or not they're done. Oh yeah, so. The cheese is nicely browning, and the interior filling is starting to simmer and bubble a little bit. So that is what we're looking for. This chili verde um, is completely mild because it just had the poblano peppers, perfect for someone that doesn't like that much heat. For those of us who do enjoy the heat, I definitely recommend hot sauce. We have some pickled jalapenos here, we have some hot sauce, and we should dig in and see what we think. Yeah, it's um, it's really bright. You get a lot of acidity from the um, from the tomatillos, a lot of body from the beans and the jackfruit, richness from the cheese. 
I feel like it's the kind of vegetarian dish that meat eaters would still enjoy because it definitely feels very rich and satisfying and savory. And in reality, is in fact, it's you know vegetable-based. So That was Chef Arlen Llewellyn of Function Brewing in Bloomington, Indiana, sharing her recipe for jackfruit verde enchiladas. Find the details at eartheats.org. The federal government plans to start sending payments to black farmers this summer in recognition of how it denied them loans and assistance over generations, effectively transferring farmland to their white neighbors. Yet, as David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports, the money comes too late to reverse the decades of damage caused by discrimination in farming. Janella Holmes walks along the edge of a field of golden wheat near the northwest Kansas town of Nicodemus. And so this section right here she heads the Kansas Black Farmers Association. And, uh, and back in 1877, her great-great-grandfather joined the wave of homesteaders who staked their claims here. All of this was black-owned at one time. Six by six miles, black-owned, black-settled, and I wanted you to just see just how vast it is. Nicodemus is the last remaining town out of many that were settled by formerly enslaved people who migrated from the south to the western frontier. Kansas alone had about a dozen black farming colonies. When you think about farming in the historical context of African Americans and migration, what you see is the land is the draw. Angela Bates is another descendant of those Nicodemus settlers. She runs the town's historical society. At its peak, she says the land here was home to nearly 150 black farmers. But today, no one's farming in the Kitty Mist right now. There's a few black farmers who live in neighboring towns, but not many. It's a pattern that's repeated across the country. A hundred years ago, Kansas was home to upwards of 150,000 acres of black-owned farmland. That number's now closer to 10,000. Nationwide, about 90% of the acres that were once black-owned has slipped away. If something is not done in the next few years, the next generation, meaning like 30 years from now, we could literally be talking about there's only a few hundred black farmers left in this country. Thomas Mitchell is a law professor at Texas A&M University and a member of the Land Loss and Reparations Project research team. He says systematic discrimination by the U.S. Department of Agriculture drove one black farmer after another off their land. This wasn't the exception to the rule. This wasn't a bug. This was a feature of the system. By the government's own admission, many black farmers couldn't get money to buy land or operate their farms because they were denied credit for bogus reasons. And when the farmers filed complaints, the USDA often did nothing. So now the federal government is offering around $4 billion to make amends, paying off loans of farmers who survived despite racist policies. But Mitchell says his team's preliminary research puts the actual amount of wealth black farmers have lost at $300 billion. I got something I'll show you. Bernard Bates, Angela's cousin, was one of those farmers. At his home west of Nicodemus, he thumbs through a stack of faded color photos from when his farm was foreclosed on nearly 40 years ago. Yeah, that's when they loaded some of my machinery. They sold our machinery first, then they sold the land. Among the papers on his desk sits an affidavit from a local loan officer. It says the credit association denied Bates the help he needed to keep his farm afloat, deliberately to push him out of farming. His 950 acres, the homestead, even the wheat he had harvested were all taken away. My wife tells everybody, yes, if I had a gun, I said I'd probably shot somebody. Because the gun worked all hard all year, and they, we still didn't watch some steel wheat all night long. Bates was part of a landmark USDA settlement in the 1990s that was supposed to send billions to black farmers who had been treated unfairly. But he says he's still waiting for that money. I haven't got a penny yet. And now the new federal effort to help black farmers is already getting pushback. Banks say they'll lose out on interest payments. White farmers have sued, claiming discrimination because they don't have access to it. Johnella Holmes, the head of the Black Farmers Group, says her organization has received threats over the payments. Yet she figures only a quarter of the farmers she works with will even be eligible. And many of the farmers who do qualify are skeptical about signing up. But if the relief does help any black farmers hold on to their land, she says it could be the first step toward making things right. Do I want handouts? Absolutely not. I just want to be treated fairly and put in a position where we can be at least on the football field. 
For the Kansas News Service, I'm David Condos in Nicodemus. The Kansas News Service reports on health, the many factors that influence it, and their connections to public policy. Find more at ksnewsservice.org. This story comes to us through our partners at Harvest Public Media. I received the tragic news this week of the death of a beloved member of the food community here in Bloomington. Teresa Bertles of Heartland Family Farms was a devoted listener and had been a guest on our show a number of times, talking about bringing farm-fresh food to the IU campus or the importance of farmers' markets in sustaining local food systems. Teresa is well known in our community for her farming wisdom, her warmth, her generosity, and her joyous laughter. She kept so many households well-fed, and she will be deeply missed. Thanks for the good food, Teresa. That's it for our show this week. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Emily Wallace, Rick Steves, Janice Nadworny, Arlen Llewellyn, and everyone at Function Brewing. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.